This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance, sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Today's Risky Woman is Diane Mullinex, or better known as Dynamo Diane Mullinex. Diane's a partner at Pinson Mason and head of the global telecom and gaming practices, as well as head of technology, media, telecom for Middle East. Uh, She's dual qualified, uh, French lawyer and UK solicitor, born in Japan, and she started her career in Singapore, and we'll hear more about her journey uh, in a little moment. She specializes in and has very extensive experience on telecom and technology sectors and other highly regulated industries such as gaming and gambling. Uh, She also works on cross-border matters and cyber security aspects, including digital entertainment industry, IoT, and other disruptive platforms. She's a co-founder of the Power Women's Network, and we hope to have a few more Power Women featured on Risky Women over the coming months. It's going to be a busy session today as we aim to cover many areas that Diane uh, has expertise in, from digital transformation, gaming, innovation, smart cities, IOTs, and we'll have a particular focus on uh, data and cyber as well. So, Diane... Welcome, and can we get sort of some of the story behind those headlines? I've given a brief snapshot, but if you can uh, fill in how your journey has gone so far. Well, what's behind the headlines is an appetite um, for not only challenging environment, but creative thinking and doing things that were not done before. So after having you know, lived in several countries and lived in Europe, I decided to move to Singapore. Um, and I was really young. I was 22 years old. And I actually moved to Singapore without a job, deciding that you know, as a technology lawyer, and at that time I was doing a lot of mergers and acquisition in, in technology, you know, going east was the way to go. And I landed in Singapore and said, okay, well, you know, I could have a very nice job for the next 50 years in a very good law firm in Paris. So what should I do now? So I went for, I would say, the most abrasive approach, which was actually culturally immersing me in a local law firm. Where So I started working in the local office of Baker McKinsey, where, as they say in Singapore, I was the only Caucasian. And that was a really interesting journey into not only understanding, because Singapore is a wonderful lab into, you know, diversity of culture, races and and way to work. So I ended up working with all kind of nationality languages, but also was immersed in a different way to work. So the start of my career from Singapore, moving into this very local law firm, and then, you know, being really bold, really bold, because I just wanted to stretch myself in a way that I felt I could make a difference in this market. So I decided that there was no French firm actually present in Singapore. 
and uh, some very personal circumstances. My father passed away, I was really young. I decided to stay on in Singapore and go and see some French firm and say, well, why don't you set up a presence in Singapore? And I think it's the, the, the reward of being bold is, is finding a hole in the market and being convinced that you can actually address this market, although everything was against me. I was too young, I was a female, I was not experienced, and all of the above. So long story short, you know, this experience setting up this law firm was a real success to the extent that after five years of success, I was basically offered in a city law firm equity partnership at 28 years old, which at the end of the day is quite an amazing achievement, but was probably the worst mistake in my career because actually getting somewhere too quickly doesn't mean you're going to be successful at it. And I did lack at that time the emotional intelligence, the toolkit to survive in an environment which was very, very male-dominated, a very boys club type of attitude. So from something, you know, as a lawyer, you always dream about being a partner. It didn't work out really well. And two years after, I just had to rebuild everything from scratch back in Paris, where I had no name, no clients, no, no brand. And so throughout this career, going from big firms to actually setting up my own practice, which, as we casually say, a man in a dog type of practice, it was a woman in <laughs> <and> a dog. <laughs> Oh, rather a woman and a goldfish. I'm not very good with dogs. Um, I actually built and then grew a practice which was extremely successful, which I then sold uh, down the line 12 years after to Pinson Mason to come back to the city as an equity partner. So what really drives me is not only the challenges, but is working across culture and different. And why did I, you, you could ask me, you know, why did you do the sale? You, you, you know, why come to a big uh, law firm and you were on your own? Because at the end of the day, what really shapes you as a professional is what you love doing. And I had one issue is in my law firm, I was really good into doing work in Afghanistan in Kosovo in Africa, but the scalability of the business was something. And this is a dilemma that a lot of entrepreneurs, whatever mm. sector is, is basically, you know, scalability and how you spread, you know, how you edge your bets and how you spread the risk. When you are two or three partners with the whole people rely on to bring mm. work, you know, how do you scale it up? So all this brought to the strategic move where I am today. But I think what drove me to this career is, is the constant questioning of how can you do things differently and having to be bold enough to actually now, you know, I'm, as, as, as you mentioned, working a lot in the Middle East as a female, including in countries which are seen challenging for women like Saudi Arabia. But again, having this cultural understanding which are built up helps me to actually see where I can bring value added. And although there's a lot of work to be done in terms of diversity and getting more women accepted in leadership position, I have yet to see, I have seen very, very few occasions where 
when people understand that you're actually bringing the value, they don't want to work with you. And this is, I think, what is key for female is, is getting to the stage where you, you actually understand what you're giving as, as a value added. So this is, this is, in a nutshell, my career. Okay, so lots of great messages there. Fantastic. Uh, be bold. Take risks. Um, you obviously took several risks moving to Singapore, um, several of your other roles, and you're also very entrepreneurial. Uh, if you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would be your dream job? Well, I think the good thing about um, having a, a potential different dream job is you constantly challenge yourself to see, well, where can I contribute? And mm. I think this is really interesting. Probably um, during all my life, I've been really passionate uh, around uh, women and child trafficking uh, issues. So I have managed to combine a very busy life, but also working on those issues. And I think what's fascinates me today is how you can get all those charity foundation work even more professional, even more innovative, e even more cutting edge than actually doing the usual, which is still necessary fundraising. Mm. And I think if I wasn't doing what I'm doing today, I will take all this digital cross-cultural um, disruptive approach to actually manage a business into um, charity and, and, and try to implement some of those management business driven culture that the pro bono sector still lack i would say wow diane that's um that's fascinating and i also do a lot of work around uh anti-trafficking um with a, a stop slavery summit that i run in hong kong so um, i'm sure we could have another session um uh covering uh that issue as well but I'd like to get into um, some of the areas of your expertise and, and maybe if we start with um, uh, political risk. Um, you know, you've done a lot of work in the Middle East. Um, I know that there's been several crises that you've been dealing with and that the, the nature of political risk is changing and, and what that means for companies. So can you tell us a bit more about um, the work that you're doing at the moment? Well, I think the issue that companies are facing today is the political risk is not the same that we were taught at school. So basically, we fortunately not that young and we come from a generation that, you know, it was the Cold War and basically it was one side of the world against the other. Today, not only it's more complex than this, but you have a number of actors and influences that are playing a role in the political risk. So... Whether it's social activists, whether it's bloggers, whether it's the straightforward, you know, terrorist act, today as a company, it's very difficult to actually encompass all the different side of political risk. The other thing that we don't realize is any political crisis have an impact which is much greater than before. So, for example, in the GCC situation, you know, it's it's not only what was happening in terms of cybersecurity intrusion in Qatar, but the perception of Al Jazeera, but it was the mere fact that for a while you couldn't send a letter across the border. And so things that are actually taken for granted that will always work, suddenly in a political crisis, stop. 
And this is where social media is playing a good and a difficult role for company to understand because something goes viral very quickly. And this is how today it's the challenge for this company is to understand the variety of political risk, how it's going to impact their organization. And when you do an investment in any country, so, you know, you, I do a lot of work in Africa, for example. So, you know, for years it was all about, you know, your telecom license being suspended, you're being expropriated and all of this. So you still have that and you have bilateral protection investment treaty and all of that. You never thought about the situation where we had in Arab Spring, where you had some government and military power going to telecom operator and saying, now we're taking control of your installation because actually by throttling, which means in technical mean making internet slower, we can control demonstration. We can intercept you know, the text messages and the WhatsApp, and we will know where protesters go. You can't anticipate that when you are a platform running, let's say, you know, transportation services, which are disruptive, that one day a government is going to tell you, well, I'm really interested in knowing where, you know, your riders go, who they pick up, how can I get this data? So all those kind, because we have more and more regulation and compliance, and we have there's so many countries to deal with, is is anticipating situation like this, you know, is 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 you know, Facebook had a tremendous role in Arab Spring, but you know, the latency, the server, how do you get you know the encryption key, and there's all these things, you know, it's a careful balance that companies need to have between risk. Political risk, risk as of what's the, your appetite and how your information can be trusted. And the problem is before we used to get, you know, this ex-secret service guy that were running those organizations. The problem is those guys are not today always trained to understand how social activism would work or how they can get different type of information, different sources, and how can they prove those you proofread those. Sources. So, are you seeing that there's that companies are starting to understand that the the what they need to be looking out for is so different, is evolving, and then they need to be preparing for it. I think company at both levels start to understand, but I think first is is understanding, as I said, what is political risk. Second is is measuring it with the appropriate sources, and the metrics are not out there. You know. Are you more at risk of, uh, 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 look at what happened to United Airlines on this overbook? Yeah. So, you know, are you at risk of having a video? And it's quite interesting to see, for example, last time I was sitting on a, on, on a plane and, you know, someone was really upset and people started automatically taking videos. So the thing is, what is your area of risk? If you're in the travel and hospitality, how do you mitigate this? If you're in the oil and gas industry, what is your real risk? So it's it's completely different. Do you have the proper metrics to do that? Then, do you how do you mitigate? How do you spread your risk? And and is your board and your team really aware of the type of risk? And then it's preparing. And the problem is preparing for those incidents requires a holistic approach, which is so unused. We're not used to work holistically over those crises. Mm. Before, during, 
and lesson learned. And, 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 you know, you need good metrics, you need to learn the lesson, and how do you change the policy? So I think it's a journey where my, I see companies embarking on, but there's also lack of expertise. So do you see anyone doing it well uh, in terms of that holistic approach? Um, I think that um, the oil and gas utility industry are quite good at it. Why? Because they've been investing for a long time in emerging country and 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 you know assessing political risk and you know they're used to social activists because they are touching something which is goes to the heart of a country, which is basically natural resources. So I think they have been you know, probably ahead of the curve. The financial service industry is, 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 is making progress, but the problem is there's so many compliance uh, overload on a day-to-day basis that actually being forward-looking takes so much energy and cost that, you know, it's all about resources. So it's interesting to see how, but, you know, the latest event in terms of terrorism have prompted new collaboration. So, for example, the travel and hospitality industry are now having groups where competitors actually do share on a regular basis the level of threats, how they would react to a terrorist attack, and all of that. Because we had situation in certain places where, for example, in Paris, where, you know, finding the map, you know, of the places and how you, the exits and all of that was quite a challenge. So, you know, there's more and more collaboration between competitors, which I think is good. Yeah, we see that a bit even around what this means for financial institutions, how are we really going to tackle financial crime without some level of collaboration as well. Now, you've done a lot of um, uh, cross-border work and entry into new markets, and I think it's interesting some of the uh, things that I read about you were that your customers uh, are always saying that you're, you know, you have unique skills of being able to combine business objectives, looking at governance and complex legal issues, but being very pragmatic and showing them how they can still, you know, gain business, take this as an opportunity, not just lock it down, stop all the risks. So, you know, tell us more about how you manage to sort of combine ensuring that you know, the companies are, I guess, legally safe and, and managing the risk, but also able to enter maybe difficult markets. I think the key to that is to be bold enough to ask the dumb question. I think the, the biggest problem we have as advisor is we are, people come to us, we are extremely expensive, so we're supposed to know it all. And by not being humble enough to ask the dumb question to your client is what exactly do you want to achieve in this transaction? Do you want to set a foot in this country? What's your appetite for risk? How is this going to be financed? How is your board behind you? Um, who is going to lead this joint venture? What are, you go- what are your intentions about RE giving back to this country? How involved your local partner are going to be for real or for fake? And, and, and do you have an exit strategy? And I think this is, this is first understanding what is the objective. So it's, it's you are here as a trusted advisor to help deliver a transaction, which is, according to your client, a good enough transaction to one, get through the investment committee and through the board. 
And I think we have to let go the ideal transaction, which is perfect, where all your assets is going to be fully secure. Because when you go into emerging country, other than the political risk, there's risk that you can't foresee happening. And this is where you get the risk appetite of your client. And there's certain things that you need to be pragmatic. And although, you know, lawyers are, you know, pages and pages of contracts and all of that, but it won't help very much if you have a tribal situation up happening in Africa and you have a coup d'etat and, 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 and how actually you're going to get your guys out of the country is probably what your client wants to know first. So I think it's go, doing work in emerging country is fascinating, but you have to spend the time to understand the dynamics. And I think one of the common mistakes is not spending sufficient time understanding the culture, the community, the way how things work. And then once you have decided to invest in this country, invest in relationships. Because investing in relationship will be the one, two, three phone calls you will get before being expropriated. It's the one, two, three phone call you'll be able to make to actually change and go to the highest level and see how you can renegotiate a deal. Because before going to divorce, it's tons of renegotiation. But, in, but to be in a position to renegotiate, you have to have built connections. And this is where I think working in this emerging country and doing what I do pragmatically is, is being able to ask the dumb question, saying no to a client sometimes. And, and, and this is your job to say no. And this is where we need to go, especially as female, above our people-pleaser type of situation. And, and it's the same thing when you sit on the board as a non-executive. Is, is, you, know, you can't be on the receiving end of the buying and the selling of the management team is asking those dumb questions. So I think this is all about you know, investing in those kind of difficult countries, but also looking at the potential. So interesting there that you bring in the sort of cultural aspects of the deals as well. Um, you obviously have worked in many different uh, countries and that's given you a lot of insight into um, the cultural factors. Can you talk a bit about how that relates from a compliance perspective and share maybe some interesting examples of where culture and compliance uh, requirements differ and maybe they offer interesting um, approaches as well. What I see, which is quite fascinating of culture and compliance, is people don't have the same idea of compliance. So I'm personally convinced that global compliance programs don't work. They don't work. Why they don't work? Because people culturally, the self-reporting aspect of it, hurts fundamentally a number of cultures. And for example, when you look at the result of compliance program, a lot of the offenders have been all trained officially on the breach. But what you have is the lack of reliable metrics. For example, in certain culture, self-reporting or reporting is a very difficult thing. Do you have a metric that would actually tell you that in the specific country, how many things are reported? How many things are investigated? Until what level? 
and what decision. So people don't get into the granularity. And I think this is where the culture of compli and compliance actually needs to work hand in hand is actually being having the foresight about proper metrics. Trade. A successful compliance program is not, usually you say, oh, 95% of the workforce has actually done the program. But the follow-up and the real understanding is not done. And it has to be done according to the culture of each of the countries. So I think this is where I see the biggest challenge. So you mentioned before when I was talking to you about a game that you used um, with the regulatory authorities in Qatar that um, sounded like a, a unique way of training people. Can you share more on that? It's quite interesting how serious game are making a, a big a, a breakthrough in, into compliance. First, there, there is, you know, some neuroscientist data very clear. You learn more when you have fun and when you play a game, you actually hold more information and there's an element of, you know, stimulation. When we started uh, doing the serious game in Qatar, especially in the Middle East, you have a very large mix of culture and nationality. It can go from any part of the Middle East to India, to Pakistan, to Bangladesh, to European, to Americans, to Chinese. And so we had, you know, a lot of different culture and you need actually to make those guys work as a team. And when you put people in one, in a competition context, who's whose team is going to win the game, whose team is going to score the best. When you actually have tools with make them take options, show the hands or buy buttons or everything, you create an interaction where people that didn't talk to other people are actually starting to have a dialogue. And the problem with compliance is Compliance is holistic. So you can't have the IT guys, which is going to cry their eyes out if they have a cybersecurity or a data breach, if they don't talk to the legal guys, which says, well, if you use that, then we're in breach of this regulation and not even talking about the GDPR stuff, without talking to the communication guys saying, you know, the, the social media is going crazy. So the thing is, you need to get people to talk together. And the only way you can get that is not behind playing a game behind a screen. It's actually live game, putting teams, putting challenges. And this is how you can change things a little bit and make people talk. Because the first thing that you need to do in compliance is having people daring to pick up the phone and feeling empowered enough to pick up the phone to the guy that did the game three months ago and saying, you know, I think we should talk about this. So it's a real physical game, not just a, an online um, game. It's both. It's oh, online, so right. you play with questionnaire, but yeah. you create virtual teams or you do it in a room with teams. It's it's You can do it a different way, but the most important things is putting together people that don't talk to each other. Mm because this is the only way you're going to get the message across. So what has been the, the sort of shift in um, focus and what uh, challenges um, and issues the clients are, are um, looking at now? So what's been that shift over the last few years? I think the clients are facing increased burden of compliance which is more regulation and you know we, we just you know the GDPR being an example but the financial services is another example the money laundering and you know all of that so I think the clients are struggling to see where they're going to put their resources 
the clients are struggling to see how they can lower the cost of compliance and looking into smarter tools, artificial intelligence being one, um, but also being uncomfortable because it's there's a human factor in compliance, which is really important. So how much is machine learning and how much is human learning? So I think one of the challenges is striving is in a context of uncertainty with more regulation and compliance, less financial mean to actually be compliant because, you know, it's a tougher market. The margin are going lower and, and there's, you know, the disruptors are around the corner. So one of the issue is how do you make sure you anticipate the move of your own industry and the financial one with the fintech as one, but there's not a single industry which is not disrupted today. So you mentioned disruption and, and disruption really, you know, we see it everywhere. How is the legal industry itself being disrupted with things like um, artificial intelligence? And and what does that mean from the sort of risk perspective? Well, you know, I think legal is being disrupted because the first, there's a lot of legal tech out there. So every work which is commoditized now, you know, first it started by what we call the legal you know, processing outsourcers. So you had people in countries where it were costing less and, you know, there was delegation. Um, today we have legal tech saying, well, this is all commoditized and this is super easy to do. So basically you'll pay a few months and you'll get access to 25,000 precedents. Then you have um, jobs that used to pay that don't pay anymore. Because what? Because clients don't just don't have the budget or are more actually keen to take risks. So if I have a tool, I'm, I'm going to do a big merger. I want to do some due diligence. Am I going to go for a tool which is going to look for keywords like change of control and make me a list of the contracts which is going to be affected by the merger and would probably will get it 80% right? Or will I pay a million to a firm to look at every single contract. And the issue is that the industry today goes for the first option, maybe not for the biggest merger, but don't, don't forget that a large part of the deals, the acquisitions that are making those companies are small deals. So when you have a small deals, you need to cut down a cost. And this is where the legal industry needs to go invest in artificial intelligence. Predictive justice is, a, is an example. You know, putting, you know, for example, if you look, especially in countries which are quite new, in France, there's this movement about we don't even publish every legal, you know, court decision. But if we were, and you take some behavior analytics, which is this, you would, you kind of know what this judge is going to rule. You know, and, and this is what we see even at our firm at Pinson Mason having predictive causes kind of algorithm. So you have this huge you know, you have 10 years, you've done a lot of construction dispute, you put all this in, in a proper algorithm, you know 80% of the time when the project is going to go wrong. So this is where people investing time and resources in this is coming traditionally in our industry, which means that like everywhere else, we'll have mergers in our own industry, the legal industry, we'll have consolidation, and we'll have the hubers of... Uh, of the legal tax. So, I mean, data is, a, is an important topic, but also on the counter side, um, we've also had a lot of cyber attacks and a lot of cyber security issues. So 
It's also a hot item um, at many management levels, including the board. What are the trends that you're seeing around this, um, especially around, you know, obviously the digital entertainment industry and others where you work in? How are the disruptive platforms affecting them and, and the issues around data? Well, obviously, um, today when you look at the valuation of the company, data is a very important part. I remember five years ago, we were still having the conversation about what was the valuation of goodwill things like this. So today we know that companies which have good data, let's say reliable data, up-to-date data, which going back to GDPR, are probably worth much more of companies that don't have reliable processes and data. But the problem is the overlay of the compliance makes all this quite difficult. So cybersecurity is not only the prevention of the crisis, because we have seen that in all the cybersecurity attacks, the one I cried, everything, it's all started about, I'm not going to update to the latest version, I'm gonna open this phishing. So the human part is major, and we still haven't figured it out how to actually change behaviors. So cybersecurity is a human factor most of the time. Then cybersecurity is also a way to actually competition place, you know, the intelligence, hacking into system, getting all of that. And so companies are less prepared to think, you know, they, they have this idea, you know, of this Russian hacker in, in, or this Chinese hacker, and, and it's always the same scenario. I mean, a lot of the cyber breach today are social activism. A lot of the breach today are, you know, you know their competitors, the things like this, and this is why it's so difficult for board to actually tackle the subject. And for years and years, the reply to cybersecurity was more equipment. Please give us more budget. Let's get more firewall. Let's get all of this. But we are starting slowly but surely to understand that cybersecurity is not a technical IT expense issue. It's a behavior issue. And until you don't get this, you won't be able to actually start comprehend how vulnerable your organization is. When you see, like six months ago, we did an audit and we give some freebie, which was some USB port that we basically handed up at, in, in a parking. And I know it's, it's, it's quite funny because we did that five years ago, but we still have the same result. We, we had 62% of those USB port plugged into the company's you know, uh, um, laptops. So... At the end of the day, I know everybody smiles with it, but it goes back. You know, like I say, when I do all those training and I do, you know, I talk to the boards and everything. And I said, guys, 500 laptops are forgotten every day at Chartugo Airport. (laughs) 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 And this is just the beginning. So, you know, it's. I think the challenge of data, cybersecurity, and the platform, and I think what big companies are also facing is um, um, the problem of the due diligence. So, for example, a big company will buy a small company because they have this fabulous app that they don't have the time to create, but they will buy it. But there's very little numbers of companies that actually do the due diligence on the cybersecurity, the proof net of the platform. So what becomes, you know, a data breach of a small company becomes a data breach of a small company owned by a big corporation. And then it goes viral and then it goes crazy. And then, you know, you have your drop in your stocks over the two weeks after because, you know, 
of a, an acquisition that you did, you know, three years before, but never checked, you know, the proof net into cybersecurity. I mean, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? It's taking that real three hundred and sixty mm. degree view of what's going on, not just saying this is a technology issue. Technology needs to solve it. But no, what that- you see also, what is quite interesting, is when you have too much focus on security, naturally people will circumvent. So I have experience of, of, of clients having very thorough cyber security teams where, you know, you can't surf the net or using logging in into, what do people do? They just don't log or they go on their visitor, you know, network and they do what they want. So you're going to tell me, okay, we achieve something in a certain way is that they don't surf those using, you know, the network of the company. But there's an overlap because people, human are human. So the right balance of security is quite important here. So I really would like to hear a bit more about the work that you've been doing around smart cities as well, because I think it's um, it's really fascinating um, across many of the aspects that we've been talking about. So can you share more on um, you know what you're seeing in the sort of whole evolution of smart cities? So it's quite interesting to see how culture shape the way those projects are done. So I do you take the view that your data is your data and you own it as an individual and you can monetize it if you want, or you take the view on the other side as a government that in order to service the end user and the citizen, this data is common property. So you would have an approach with open data, for example, in Dubai, where you'll have the you know, transportation regulatory authority that would say, well, I want a single platform and I want the taxis, I want the Hubers, I want the Karim. Karim is is, is one of the biggest competitors to Uber in in Dubai, but I'll I'll put the public transportation, I'll put the ERP system and the highway so my citizen can actually choose what's the best way excluding cycling because it's too hot in Dubai, <laughs> to, or walking, to get from point A to point B. But this is the, the greater good approach into, okay, this is open data we're going to share. Which is similar to the Singapore, Singapore model, yeah? Exactly. Then you have another model, which is basically my data and my data. So how do you share it, how do you protect it, and all of that. So when we see smart cities project, um, at the core center is the data, but it's not so much the data, and we can go into the debate of big data, but what do you do with your data? And how do you actually put it in a purpose that serves actually what you want to do in a small city? So those those big projects about being the happiest city in the world, the most, you know, at the end needs to be sliced to what is in there for the end user, what's in there for the private sector. Because the thing is, the smart city example is the typical PPP project. It's it's the public with the private in a partnership, but we forgot one partner, which is the citizen, which is now claiming rights. Say, okay, for 20 years you've done PPP, but it now it's private, public, and people. Mm. And this is where we see very different dynamics and this is where the culture factor is also important and you know not dwelling into the millennial and how they see things but the p of the people is having a huge impact on how those smart city projects are done 
the use of the IoT, the willingness to share, and, and, and also, to be fair, the political structure of the country you know, is also important. Would you have the Ministry of Transport arguing with the Ministry of Power or, you know, or the Ministry of Interior that would say, oh, data, cyber, it's my remit. Utilities, you, so you need, again, the collaborative model is changing everything because there's not a single stakeholder, whether it's private, public, including the people that will have all the answers. And this is where people are struggling because the partnership model of a small city, you're going to have very small company with the super sexy app that is going to contract with a government, which is also going to subcontract to a huge listed company. And all those people, the startups the, and the people and the citizen never work together. What kind of contract do you do? How do you litigate? So the thing is, is re- reshaping the way you do those partnership agreements. Right. There's so many um, areas that obviously are being rethought and there's so many other areas that I'd really love to cover. We haven't even touched on, on gaming yet, but um, maybe I'll just open it up to you of, you know, what areas um, in the governance risk and compliance space are really hot at the moment that you, you'd like to share more on? Well, you know, gaming, um, well, gaming has this reputation about, you know, being, let's face it, seen as a dodgy business. Um, I think gaming has evolved a lot because gaming has been under the scrutiny of regulator big time. And we're having situation where listed gaming company can't even even open a banking account, you know, sometimes because it's so complicated. So I also think that the move into online gaming makes things easier to and and when you look at the laws and you know there's been more and more regulation around gaming in the last five to seven to eight years because the black market was so big that at the end of the day countries said we need to regulate because not only we want the tax revenue but you know we need to control this so the thing is if you apply to online gaming you know the monitoring the aml the 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 pressure of the regulation is quite huge and today to actually operate in a regulated market as a gaming operator the cost of compliance is tremendous um now you know the convergence between the brick and mortar let's say the casinos and the online gaming hasn't happened yet. I think a lot of the operators of, you know, the brick and mortar's casino was thinking about a presence of life would attract, and it's still being difficult. And this market is very different. I mean, you, you, you are in Hong Kong, you're very near Macau. I mean, the gaming market, the lottery market, for example, in, in China is a business to government. So, you know, is, is you have those new actors, which are provinces in China, which organize those massive lotteries or those betting terminals, which actually are completely different and completely regulated by governmental agency, which is something completely different of the private owned type of casino we had in Vegas. So I think this is where it's an area where it's changing a lot and gaming means a lot of things you know you know the 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 social gaming arena the virtual goods the virtual currency you know we 10 years ago we were we had virtual pig racing with zynga and you could bet on pigs racing i mean it wasn't gambling in a virtual world growing your carrots and betting on your pig so all of this has changed about how 
people play, the entertainment, the digital entertainment world is changing. And because there's so much data and there's so much monetization around this, is it's it will attract compliance. It does attract AML. If you know the the console model for the Sony is is complicated. How how many consoles can you earn? How many release of you know the games you can do? Because a game takes between two to five years to do. So how do you monetize in between? And therefore, how do you do AML? How do you make sure that underage are not you know swapping, you know casino fake coins? And how do you work with all this? Okay, we've covered a lot of different topics, uh, Diane, which has been fantastic. Um, but I want to move on to our risky women rants and revelations section. So can you share with us, what's the one thing or the piece of advice that you would give your younger self the, the thing that you, you know, you know, now, but you wish you knew then? First, um, we have to let I take the view that as a young woman, there's a lot of things that we need to no, and it's always very difficult to get some perspective. I think as a female, the compare and despair type of stuff is we have to let go of this thing. Always as a female, we spend our time comparing ourselves to other female most of the time with criterias which um, unfortunately are not us, you know. Um, so it would be whether uh, a female has more succeeded more in her life because she has a bigger house or a family or not a family or whatever criteria but you'll have your those stereotypes about always comparing yourself and not understanding that you're empowering yourself for your own happiness because even if this woman that you look um, at is you know the model of success that doesn't mean she's happy so i think the compare and despair type of stuff needs to let go the people pleasing is, as I said, is something we we definitely need to understand that, you know, let go the, the, the unconscious bias. It's not because you, you ask questions, that you raise your voice, that you're hysterical, that you act, you're over emotion, you know, you're full on. I mean, you know, honestly, I still get those 360 uh, comments about, you know, being intimidating. And I, you know, I guess that my you know, fellow partner would be not intimidating, but, you know, we'll have willpower, charisma, leadership. Okay. We also have to see ambitious as not a bad word, and I think this is really important, but where I would, if I have one thing to give, is what I call is, is making a decision and doing massive action. We are meant, as women, we always think about all the scenario possible and that's why we say you know lemon sister lemon brothers lemon sisters it wouldn't have happened yes we're very good at anticipating risk and seeing and 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 thinking about that and seeing other angle but this is also when pushed to an extreme it paralyzes so making a decision each time is not a life-threatening decision and when you make a decision just take action 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 because you can never know what is going to be the, the complete right action or the wrong action. But that's okay. Because even if it's the wrong action, it'll change. But keep doing the action until you get what you want. But if you don't do that, you start thinking, okay, should I do this or should I do that? And if I do that, it's going to be complicated. So it's, it's the focus of the massive action list. Just keep on trying until you get what you want. And you'll make mistakes. But that's okay. So I think this is... 
you know, this is the advice I would give. So lots of great advice there. Um, now, on to your rant, um, which I always enjoy this section. So um, what one thing would you change now and why? What I would change now and, and, and why, I think um, we come from a generation, and I always remember my first boss telling me, um, I think it was, uh, work like a dog, dress like a lady, act like a man. So... I, I won't go into the, 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 the question of the role model, which is a very good point about the lack of role model and all of that. But but I think we need more, and this, this is the whole purpose of the Risky Woman Network or the Power Woman Network, is we need more sorority here. And, and, and we always quote Madeleine O'Brien and saying, you know, a woman that doesn't help another woman will end up in hell. But in reality, I must say, when I turn around in my career, I had no woman helping me. So the thing is, we need to get them better at helping each other and giving ourselves opportunity. We need to be more confident in ourselves that if we give an opportunity, what goes around comes around. And, that, and, and this is where we see now, you know, all the, the publication of the gender pay gap and all of that. But how many women are really heard on those questions? What, what can we do more to actually give a different way of succeeding to the younger generation? Yeah, I'd love, obviously, the gender pay gap and, and publishing those statistics here has been, um, you know, fairly controversial. I mean, what's your thinking? What's the next actions in terms of addressing the gender pay gap? I think we, 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 we obviously have a lot of work to do. Okay, we have a lot of work to do because especially in the lingual industry, we're not anywhere near where we should be. We have a, a tremendous issue with young female leaving, you know, the profession or not making it to partnership or, you know, not making it to equity, which is, you know, the sacred thing. Um, I think we need to acknowledge that not all of those female want to be like us. And this is the toughest part is, is because from a, from a male side, they said, okay, we have some role model. But actually, a lot of those young women would look at me and say, I hate her life. I would hate traveling so much. I would hate not seeing my kids every day. How can I succeed differently? And this is where we need to do a lot of work, is actually having paths and ways to succeed differently and to make it differently and to consider success as a different definition for each of the female. Because again, if you go into the common definition of success, you go into the classical male stereotypes definitions. So I think this is where we need to work is what is success? What success would look like for this younger generation and how we can help this younger generation to achieve that, accepting and being you know, honest that our success is not what they want, as hard as it seems. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of that really is also looking at how do we change the nature and the structure of work uh, to accommodate some of those um, issues and, and, and certainly that what does success look like. Okay, now to wrap up, um, we want punchy answers in our rapid fire round. So the Risky Women rapid fire round with Diane Malinix. 
So one word to sum up the world of governance, risk and compliance from your perspective. Question. And the cure for the cost of compliance. Proper effectiveness, good metrics and new tools like artificial intelligence. Biggest technology impact on uh, compliance and risk. Supply chain. The, The more you have people helping you to deliver a service which is cheaper, faster, better, the more you're going to have actors in your supply chain, the more you have risk, the more you don't know, and the more you are less aware of where the compliance risk is. So all boards today with innovation look at delivering the current product cheaper, better, faster. But to do that, you outsource, you have new actors. How do you control them? Supply chain. And your outlook for the year ahead, are you optimistic, pessimistic, uncertain? I have a nature which is always optimistic. So mine, you know, I, and we share that, you know, in Chinese crisis means opportunity. And when I was in Singapore, well, in Asia in 1996, and we went through the first Asian crisis, you know, I've seen all the opportunities that personally and professionally I had from that. So I think it's, 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 I'm being optimistic. I think we have never been so better placed to think outside of the box if we start, you know, actually having more diverse think tanks and pool of people we talk to. But I think it's a, it's a great opportunity to do something different. Fantastic. Diane, thank you for being our risky woman. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Rescue Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us on Twitter or even reaching out to me directly by email.